Good morning. It's good to be with you as we come now to the preaching of God's Word. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, please open with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Our focus this morning is going to be verses 13 to 16 in Ephesians chapter 4. We're concluding our short series on the, on the church. Next week we will resume our regular series in John's Gospel. So today's the last sermon in our series on the church. The goal in this series has been to teach on some aspects of church structure and, and church ministry so that we're all on the same page as we continue to move forward together as a church. And as we do that, as we continue to move forward, the elders do hope that these sermons will function as something like a, like a touchstone for us, a statement of our biblical convictions on important things like membership and elders and deacons and ministry. That's what we hope these sermons have done. Today we're going to conclude this series on the church with a very vital question, but one that often gets overlooked, the question of church growth. Church growth. So I hope you've turned to Ephesians chapter 4, and I hope that you'll follow along with me as we read. We're going to pick up in verse 11 as we read from Ephesians chapter 4. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church. And Christ gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time together. Heavenly Father, we need your help. We know that every time we open the Bible, perhaps we're particularly aware of it today. Please help us, God. It's a horrible thing to not hear the word of God. It's perhaps more horrible to hear it and then to not believe it and obey it. Help us, Father. We pray there would be no unfruitful hearing of your word today. That by your spirit and by your grace, you would open our ears. You would soften our hearts. You would enlighten our minds. So that seeing Jesus Christ and his glory, we would be conformed more to his image compelled more to love his body and constrained, Father, to take his gospel to the very ends of the earth. Please, God, help us, we pray. Lord, please keep me from error. We pray that your word would be opened faithfully and accurately today and that we would only hold fast to the things that are true. We love you, Father. We thank you that you have spoken to us. We pray that you would give us now ears to hear. 
We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. What does it mean for a church to grow? Considering the mission of the church, there's hardly a more pressing question for each local congregation to answer. What does it mean for a church to grow? Think of the Great Commission, Matthew 28. The mission of the church is to make disciples, to reproduce ourselves in the life of other people, and therefore the question of growth is an inescapable question. Every local church wants to grow. And yet, Christians, at least in America, seem thoroughly confused on this vital question. Take, for example, what is possibly the most puzzling exercise in American church life. The annual publication of the fastest-growing churches list. Have you ever seen this list? It's a real thing, sadly. It does just what it claims. It takes the 100 churches that have increased at the highest rate over the last year and it publicizes them as the definition of success. The fastest growing church list. It is a fascinating list for a lot of reasons. Think about that metric, fast growth. Think about putting those two words together. Fast growth. Is fast the right measure? Does fast translate to stability and endurance? Not really. Dandelions grow faster than redwoods, but wouldn't you, church, wouldn't you rather your church be like a redwood church than a field of dandelions? I would. The fastest growing church list that proves my point. When it comes to church growth, which is an inescapable question, Christians, at least in our country, seem thoroughly confused. But our passage this morning is like a light that cuts through the fog of all of that conclusion. Here in Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul clearly expects the church to grow. He clearly expects the church to grow. He even uses the word grow in verse 16. But significantly, Paul's discussion of growth does not fall prey to faulty metrics like speed and numbers. Rather, Paul's vision of growth centers on an unexpected reality. The reality of truth. Truth. This is the key to the passage, friends. For Paul, church growth is a function of truth. Notice how the language of truth is woven all through this text. Verse 13. The church is striving after the knowledge, or we could say the truth, of the Son of God. Then verse 14, the church is vigilant against false doctrine. Anything that deviates from the truth. And then verse 15, the church grows by speaking the truth in love. So do you see the emphasis all through the text? Paul clearly wants the church to grow. It's vital that the church grow. But the apostle defines that growth not in terms of numbers, not in terms of speed, but in terms of truth. Friends, that's growth in the most important sense. What does it mean for a church to grow? According to the Apostle Paul, it means a deepening embrace of the truth that is in Jesus Christ. That's growth. So that's what I want us to focus on this morning as we conclude our series on the church. We've spent the last several weeks thinking about 
the New Testament structure of the church from membership to elders and deacons. Last week we talked about every member equipped and engaged in ministry. Today I want to bring all of that together with a biblical picture of a growing church. What are we aiming for? What are we pursuing? What's our definition of success? What does it mean for us to grow? That's what I want to answer today so that we're all on the same page. In this text, there are three marks of growth that ought to get our attention. Three marks of growth that ought to serve as our metric, even if we don't ever make it on the 100 fastest growing churches list. Each mark is connected with the truth, and each one is vital. So let's notice these three marks of a growing church together. The first one is found in verse 13, mark number one. A growing church is increasingly shaped by the truth. A growing church is increasingly shaped by the truth. You'll remember from last week that Paul defined ministry as every member building up the body of Christ. You see that at the end of verse 12. That's the ministry, every member engaged. As we come to verse 13, Paul provides more insight on this ministry of building up the body. The apostle uses three phrases in verse 13 that clarify the upbuilding of the church. Look again at the text, verse 13. You can see these three phrases. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, those three phrases are making the same essential point. The goal of ministry is spiritual maturity. That's what we're aiming at. When we build up the body of Christ together, our goal is spiritual maturity. The middle phrase in verse 13, mature manhood, makes this quite clear. When you encourage another believer, what do you hope happens? You hope that they mature in Christ, that they grow up in the faith. So in its simplest expression, this is church growth. Every member maturing more and more into the image of Christ. That's the simple definition. Still, that simple summary leaves an important question unanswered. Spiritual maturity is the goal. That's what we're aiming at. But what does that look like in real life? How do we know mature manhood, spiritually speaking, when we see it? How do we know spiritual maturity when we see it? Well, if you zero in on Paul's first phrase in verse 13, you find the answer. Notice again the very first phrase in verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. This helps us understand spiritual maturity. Now, the faith in view in that phrase is not our expression of faith. Rather, the faith in view in verse 13 is the content of the gospel itself. To say it a different way, faith in verse 13 is not subjective. It's not what you experience. Faith in verse 13 is objective. It's what God reveals. It's the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. This is why Paul says that the faith is the knowledge of the Son of God. Do you see the the synonymous phrases there? Until we attain to the unity of the faith, what's that? The knowledge of the Son of God. This is key, friends. The faith in verse 13 is the truth 
that exists outside of us. The faith is the truth that has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And as a church, we grow, we grow as our unity in this objective, unchanging, revealed faith gets stronger. That's spiritual maturity. How do you know spiritual maturity when you see it? Because it looks like a church whose unity in the gospel is getting stronger. That's a spiritually mature church. That's what Paul is saying. It's an increasing expression of gospel unity within a congregation. That's mature manhood. And therefore, and therefore, to grow as a church in the most important sense, we have to put aside every other competing claim to our unity. Friends, this is the everyday work of building up the body of Christ. It's putting aside everything else that keeps us from fully embracing our identity as the people of this one faith. Putting all of those competing claims aside. That means we put aside ethnicity. We put aside social status. We put aside our personality preferences. We put aside our political commitments. We put aside our cultural background. We put aside our family history. We put aside our perspective on how things ought to be done. Each of those realities has the potential to compete with the faith, the one faith, as the defining mark of the church. So spiritual maturity is growing deeper in that unity in the gospel. And we have to be vigilant then that no other competing claims creep into that unity. The deeper we grow in the unity of this one faith, the more we mature as a church. The more we grow. So I'm just going to state it really plainly, as clearly as I can. What unites us as a church is only the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only the gospel. What makes us brothers and sisters is the faith that we confess in Jesus. That He is the eternal Son of God, uncreated and equal to the Father in nature and glory. That this eternal Son laid aside His glory to take on flesh in Jesus of Nazareth. That He fulfilled the law of God through a life of perfect obedience That he was condemned to die a sinner's death even though he was righteous before God. That he died and he was buried. And that after three days he rose again in victory for his people. That he ascended again to the Father's right hand where he received all authority to rule. And from whence he is coming very soon to judge the living and the dead. And that salvation is found only in him. And is received only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's our unity. That's our identity as a church. That's what we want to be known for. That gospel. And Paul's point is that we mature, we grow by embracing more deeply that gospel unity and only that gospel unity. Friends, this makes a massive practical difference in the life of the church. I had somebody say to me one time, 
I get really nervous about churches that emphasize unity because they, they're just using that as a cover-up to go soft on sin. I don't ever want to be that cynical. And nothing could be further from the truth. Emphasizing unity, like in verse 13, emphasizing unity actually produces more godliness in a church. Emphasizing unity is among the most practical things that a church can do if you want to have more members who look like Jesus. Let me give you an example. The Bible commands Christians to forbear with one another. It is an overlooked and vitally necessary commandment to forbear with one another. When someone wrongs you, a Christian doesn't bite back or gossip or plot revenge. A Christian forbears. That's the biblical command. That's what God expects you to do. But that's hard to do, isn't it? It's hard to do. Some personalities just rub us the wrong way. Sometimes we just get fed up with a situation. Or sometimes a person is so different from me, I cannot fathom how or why he does the things that he does. It's just, it boggles my mind. In that situation, how do I forbear with that person? Answer, through the unity we share in the gospel. When that other brother's personality begins to grate on me, I remember that he and I share the same Lord. And this same Lord died for our sins in the same way, by shedding his blood on the cross. And that this same Lord who died for both of us is infinitely long-suffering with me to a measure that I cannot possibly imagine. And therefore, if the Lord of glory is long-suffering towards me, then surely I can be long-suffering towards my brother for whom Christ died as well. You see, striving after unity... Reflecting upon our unity in the gospel that there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. Reflecting on that unity actually changes me to love him as I ought. So don't tell me that churches that emphasize unity are just trying to go soft on sin. That's not what the Bible says. The deeper we grow in our unity in the gospel, the more we find Christ's likeness flowing from our lives into the lives of others. The truth of the gospel shapes us, friends. The truth of the gospel shapes us to display the character of Christ. And as that kind of exchange, forbearance that's rooted in the gospel, as that kind of exchange happens over and over and over in the life of a church, do you know what happens? We grow. We grow. We mature to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Friends, that vision, that biblical perspective on church growth is so compelling to me. I hope it's compelling to you. But I hope you also hear how essential it is for the gospel to be the one thing that we we prize and cherish and uphold and celebrate. Churches that are marked by strife Churches that are quick to be contentious. Churches that lack the character of Christ. Do you know they all have the same problem? Their love for the gospel is too weak. It's too weak. That's why Brian's prayer from Romans 12 was so instructive for us. 
Churches that are marked by strife and contention and a lack of Christ-likeness, they have forgotten the mercy of God that has made them part of God's family. So this, this vision of ministry is compelling to me. I hope it's compelling to you. But that also means we have to cherish and prize and value above everything else the gospel. The deeper we embrace this one faith, the more we will be shaped by that faith to display the image of Christ. That's a long way of saying we need the gospel. We need the gospel not just to save us from hell, but we need the gospel to reshape our lives so that we look like the one who saved us. That's mark number one of a growing church. A growing church is increasingly shaped by the truth. That leads right into Mark number 2. This time from verse 14. Mark number 2. A growing church is actively anchored in the truth. A growing church is actively anchored in the truth. Verse 14 spells out why spiritual maturity is so important in the Christian life. Why is, it, why is it vital that you grow? It has to do with the danger of drifting away. Notice the imagery that Paul uses, verse 14. Why are we aiming at mature manhood so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine? Paul mixes his metaphors a little bit in verse 14. He starts with the image of infancy, which contrasts with maturity from verse 13. But then he shifts from infancy to this image of a storm-tossed ship. Even if you've never spent any time on a ship, you can still appreciate the danger in verse 14, can't you? A ship out of control is poised for disaster. At any moment, that ship could run aground and sink. And so it is, Paul says, with the Christian who is not maturing in his or her faith. Such a person is adrift. A Christian who's not growing is adrift. And they're driven off course with every wind. They're driven off course without an anchor. That's verse 14. It's a danger of drifting away. But there's a positive application to verse 14 as well. If we kind of turn the verse on its head, there's a positive application. There's a connection here that can help us find an anchor that keeps us from being adrift. So look again at verse 14 and ask yourself, what exactly is carrying immature Christians off course? What is, what is tossing them around? What does Paul say? He says it's every wind of doctrine. That's striking, friends. Paul doesn't say that we are carried off by immoral behavior. He doesn't say that we're tossed about by wicked lifestyles. I mean, to be sure, those things are absolutely dangerous to our faith. But that's not what gets Paul's attention. Instead, Paul warns us against every wind of false doctrine. That's striking. Why does Paul pinpoint doctrine? In verse 14. Because of how you and I are made up. Because what enters our minds shapes our hearts. And what shapes our hearts 
ultimately shapes how we live. That's the biblical model. Mind, heart, hands. What goes into your mind changes what you love, and what you love is what you live for. So is Paul concerned about immorality in the church? Absolutely. But where does that kind of dangerous drift begin? In the life of the mind. As every wind of doctrine, every, every competing claim of truth, pushes us off course into habits of life that shape our hearts to live in opposition to God. Mind, heart, hands. That's the biblical model. And what I'm urging us to see here is the powerful role that truth plays in the Christian life. A growing church is one where members are growing deeper in the truth so that the truth anchors them in the storm of this world. Listen, the world is not neutral. The world is not neutral. There are ideas at work in the world that function like acids. They corrode trust in God until the Christian life crumbles. The world is not neutral. It has been this way in every age, but perhaps the challenge is unique for us in the digital age. We have so much information at our fingertips, far more than we can handle. If you live the bulk of your life online, friends, I would encourage you to reconsider how you are taking in information. We have so much information at our fingertips and we're not made to handle all of that information. Previous generations were concerned about having the truth concealed from them. We should be concerned about having the truth obscured by a tsunami of triviality and useless nonsense. We have so much information at our fingertips and yet the church in our day seems to lack the discernment necessary to navigate all of this information. And then you combine that with the fact that we're increasingly trained to think in sound bites, to ignore the context, to flit from one thing to the other in short bursts of disconnected stimulation. It is no wonder, as one writer has said, that we are content to amuse ourselves to death. So Paul wrote Ephesians centuries ago, but his counsel could hardly be more relevant. We are like ships adrift in a sea of competing claims. But a growing church pushes back against that drift. That's the, that's the whole point I'm trying to make here. A growing church pushes back against that drift of worldly ideas. A growing church looks to the truth as revealed in Christ, and that church finds an anchor to keep us steady. We need to recognize, brothers and sisters, we need to recognize that the world is also in the business of making disciples. In fact, that's a good way for you to think about your life. You are always being discipled by something. Always. That's what I mean when I say the world is not neutral. You and I are always being discipled. We are either being discipled by the truth of God into Christ's likeness, or we are being discipled by the deception of the world into Whatever is the fashion of the week. We're always being discipled. And therefore, a growing church takes seriously this call to be anchored in the truth as it's revealed in Jesus Christ. The world's not neutral at all. Now, even as I say that, 
there may be someone here who thinks that I'm overstating the case. I had a long conversation once with a person who tried to convince me that technology is neutral. No, it's not. It's not. The medium is shaping you. The form is shaping you. There is no neutrality. Everything is either pushing us towards God or away from Him. So if you think that I'm overstating the case, that you're always being discipled, if you think I'm overstating the case, then let me show you why I don't think I am. Notice the end of verse 14. This is the reason why the world is not neutral. Notice the source behind these winds and waves of doctrine. You see it at the end of the verse? By human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. So you catch that word crafty? That adjective cunning? Who else in the Bible is described as crafty? The serpent. In fact, Paul uses the same language in 2 Corinthians 11 to describe the evil ones. The same language, Ephesians 4, 2 Corinthians 11. From the, from the very beginning, this has been the serpent's scheme. He whispers false doctrine. And every false doctrine begins the same way. Did God really say? This has been the serpent's scheme from the beginning. He whispers false doctrine in order to lead people astray. That's why I say that the world is not neutral. You're always being discipled. And so we need to be anchored in the truth as a church. Now, don't, please don't misunderstand me. I've said a lot of things about life in this world right now. I'm not pining for the good old days when life was supposedly more simple. Life has, on some level, always been this way. So please do not hear me as the old man ranting for the kids to get off his lawn. <laughs> that's, not, that's not my goal. My goal is to get your attention. My goal is to wake you up a little bit. Many Christians are adrift in the storm. Many Christians suppose that vast practices in their life are neutral and are not doing anything to their spiritual health. And that's just not true, friends. The world is not neutral. We need an anchor that can hold us steady. We need discernment. We need discernment so that we can stay anchored in the truth. Well, that raises a big question, doesn't it? How do I cultivate discernment? If that's what we need to be anchored, how do I, how do I get it? How do I find discernment? We can't retreat into the wilderness. We've got to be in the world to fulfill our mission, but we, we can't be of the world. So the answer isn't to retreat into the wilderness or into some sort of monastic lifestyle. The answer is discernment, but how do we cultivate that? That's a huge topic, one that we could spend a good bit of time on. But I want to direct your attention back to verse 13 in order to answer it. Look, at, look back at verse 13 where Paul talks about the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is a key, perhaps the key, to developing discernment. Spiritual maturity is defined in relationship to Jesus. The, the maturing Christian looks more like Jesus day by day over the long haul. So, if Christ-likeness is the measure of maturity, then a key piece of discernment is learning to hold everything up to the measure of Christ. As Paul says in verse 13. Discernment is holding up the things of this world to the measure of Christ to see where they 
stand. Do you you see the connection there? From the maturity in verse 13 to the practice of discernment. Discernment is, in one sense, simply the practice of measuring what we encounter in the world against the standard of Jesus Christ. So, we learn to ask questions as we interact with the world around us. Questions like, does this practice, does this practice lead me towards Christ-likeness or away from it? Does this habit of life increase my appetite for God's word or does it make me hungrier for the world? Would this opportunity that I have strengthen my commitment to the local church or would it weaken my commitment to the local church? Does this idea make the truths of the gospel clearer and more compelling? Or does this idea obscure some key aspect of the gospel in order to hide God's truth? You see, Christ, in each of those questions, Christ is the measure of maturity. And what I'm doing is I'm taking what I encounter in the world and I'm holding it up against that measure to determine, is this good for me or not? I understand that's a, that's a different strategy than what is sometimes called fundamentalism or separatism. This is, a, this is a different strategy. Could we make a list of things that you should not uh, partake in? Could we make a list of things that you should avoid? Yes. Could the elders put together a catalog of ideas that you should not believe in? Yes. Could we rank behaviors on a scale of questionableness and then tell you where the cutoff is for mature Christians? I mean, on some level, yes. But that approach is actually too narrow to be helpful. We need a standard that applies in a myriad of situations across a multitude of spheres, and that standard is Christ. That practice of discernment is broad enough to to incorporate each of our lives as a believer. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Discernment, then, is taking what I encounter in the world, holding it up against that measure, and asking, is this pushing me towards him or away from him? A growing church is actively anchored in the truth, specifically the truth as it's revealed in Jesus. That's Mark number two. Mark number three, final mark of a growing church from verse 15. A growing church is faithfully ministering the truth. A growing church is faithfully ministering the truth. Verse 15 is the counterbalance to verse 14. Verse 15 reminds us that being anchored in the truth is not solely an individual pursuit. It requires the whole church body. Notice again verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. We need some careful thinking right from the start on verse 15. And we need to think carefully about that phrase, speaking the truth in love. This phrase is often misapplied. Or it might be better to say that it's underapplied. Here's what I mean. 
most Christians assume that speaking the truth in love describes the practice of loving confrontation in the church. A fellow believer is in error and I speak the truth to him by lovingly pointing out what his error is. I think that's how most Christians take this phrase. Speaking the truth in love, it describes that loving practice of confirmation. But, but, that is not the main thing that Paul has in mind in verse 15. To be sure, verse 15 does not exclude loving confrontation in the church, but that's not the main point. Instead, the main point has to do with ministering the gospel to one another. Ask yourself, friends, in verse 15, what is the truth? What is it? What's the truth? Well, it's the same as the faith in verse 13. They're the same thing. It's synonymous. So the truth in verse 15 is not my subjective perspective on the truth that you might be missing. The truth in verse 15 is God's objective revealed truth in the gospel contained in God's word. The faith in verse 13 and the truth in verse 15 are the same. And it's God's revealed truth. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor, once said, every Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. That's verse 15. That's a fitting summary of verse 15. Fundamentally, speaking the truth in love is the call to minister the gospel to one another through the application of God's word to all of life. It's not solely confronting a brother. It's also speaking the truth of Scripture to encourage and build up and minister to a brother. This is why Paul has been emphasizing unity all through this chapter. Unity is essential to speaking the truth in love. Unity is essential. Because we belong to the one Lord and are united in one faith, marked by one baptism, belonging to the one God and Father over all, because we are one body, my concern is for you and your concern is for me. That's what Paul means by love in verse 15. You and I are bound together. We are united in the one faith. And therefore, I love you and encourage you and minister to you by speaking the truth of our one faith in a way that builds you up. When that kind of ministry happens throughout a congregation, the church grows. The church matures and takes on more and more the character of Christ. In that sense, verse 15 is simply the ministry of the body in summary form. Speak the truth in love, Paul says. The truth being the gospel contained in the word of God. That's how we mature in Christ. We speak the truth of scripture. It could be as simple as a text message or an email that has a a verse from your daily Bible reading. It could be a casual conversation at the park where you share how the scriptures have convicted you and where you are seeking to grow. It could be going to a brother or sister and lovingly helping them walk more in step with the Bible. Or it could be reminding a discouraged Christian of what is true of him in the gospel, that his sins are forgiven, 
that she's been adopted into the family of God. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Speaking the truth in love could be as simple as encouraging another Christian. You do know that almost every Christian you are around is massively under-encouraged, right? Who in here is doing good on encouragement? Anybody don't need any more? No, we all need more encouragement. That's speaking the truth in love, Paul is saying. That's verse 15. To remind one another of the truth of the gospel. In all of these ways, in all of these ways then, we speak the truth of the one faith to one another because we love one another in one body. That's how a church grows. And when a church lives this way, the result is astounding. Verse 16 is a profound summary that captures so much of what we've been talking about during our series on the church. We're not going to unpack everything in verse 16, but I want to read it again and look at it for just a moment. And as I read this verse, I want you to prayerfully imagine this kind of growth happening more and more and more in our church. So I'm going to pick it up in verse 15. We're going to read through 16. We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Man, what a picture of a growing church. United in Christ, who's the head, every member gifted and essential for the work, all the members working together, holding each other up and binding each other more deeply to the Lord so that no one drifts away, and in the end, the body builds itself up in love. That's church growth. That's what it means for a church to grow. And that's where we want to go, friends. That's what we want to chase and pursue and give all of our time to. That's where we want to go. We want membership that clarifies the gospel. We want discipline that upholds the purity of the gospel. We want elders that shepherd us with the gospel. We want deacons that serve for the sake of the gospel. We want every member equipped to minister the gospel. When all of those pieces, faithfully pursued by God's grace, come together and work, a church grows. That's where we want to go. So, the elders are working to make our membership practice clearer. We're going to begin working to refine our ministry of deacons. We're going to work to better equip you and disciple you to do the work of the ministry. We need to grow there. We're working on these things. It's going to require some changes, both at the practical level and the constitutional level. But our plan is to bring the whole congregation along so that the membership as a whole affirms where the elders are seeking to lead. The elders shepherd and the congregation follows with that affirmation. But the goal in all of this, the goal in all of this is to see our, grow, our church grow according to Ephesians 4. To grow in the truth. That's where we want to go. If you read stuff on the internet too much, you've surely seen some article that says we're living in a post-Christian America. Have you seen articles like that? If you haven't, just look on the internet tomorrow because there'll be another one. 
You've surely seen these articles that we live in a post-Christian America where the common language of Christian faith and virtue has pretty much died out. That's probably true. One of the effects of a post-Christian landscape is that churches will likely struggle to grow, at least numerically. As people increasingly embrace fragmented lives of personalized spirituality, there's no compulsion for folks to come to church. And so, all of the experts tell us, the days of church growth in America are probably over, at least numerical growth. They're probably over. Who knows if that analysis is correct? The Lord has a wonderful way of taking everything that we think we know and turning it upside down. Who knows if that analysis is correct? But I am convinced that the vision of a growing church in Ephesians 4, where every member is engaged, where love is worked out among people from all kinds of backgrounds, where the rock-solid reality of truth anchors us against the storm, friends, I'm convinced that that vision of growth will never fail. That vision of growth can and will be a light in the darkness of even a post-Christian world. So as we consider that mission mandate given to us by Jesus, to be a disciple is to make more disciples. As we consider that, we ought to consider it with a sense of hope. We want the church to grow, but that growth doesn't have to wait for numerical increase, brothers and sisters. It doesn't have to wait for the next wave of people. That growth can begin right now in the life of the body together. And as we live this way, the Lord Jesus will draw people to himself, the mission will advance, and God willing, the lost will join us by grace through faith to be united to the one Lord, one faith, one baptism, belonging to the one God and Father over all. That's church growth. And so I pray that God would cause us to grow in that way, in the truth, to the glory of Christ, and to the good of his body. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want our church to grow. We pray that you would help us to grow in accords with your word, that we would be increasingly shaped by the truth, that the unity we share in the gospel would change how we live and act. We pray that we would be anchored in the truth so that as we live our lives in this world which is not neutral we would not be tossed to and fro but we would remain steady and firm and we pray Father that we would minister the truth to one another faithfully lovingly clearly help our church to grow Father but help us to grow in the truth we ask this in Jesus' name Amen